Section 3 of Tours in the South Coast District by Queensland Railways. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Burley Head. Out on the purple plains I gaze, the purple plains of the sea. Ages to me are but fleeting hours. I stand for eternity. The association of these names, Burley, Buningba, and Talabadra, is a contrast in the old and the new. Burley, one of the most ancient names of the aristocracy of Great Britain, and Talabadra, one of the quaint names so common amongst Australian Aborigines. Yet who knows but that Talabadra and Buningba carry with them traditions more ancient even than those associated with Burley itself. In point of fact, the name Burley, as attached to the head in question, originally was Burley, B-U-R-L-Y, because of its bold front and its sturdy opposition to the white-toothed combers of the Pacific. To reach Burley Heads directly from the railway, the train must be left at Buningba, which is a small township on the banks of the Talabudgera Creek, and from which the head is distant only about a mile and a half. The road is easy enough, and the end is well worth the walk. From the heights of the headland, Southport's distant houses may be distinguished through the blue haze. Splendid facilities for camping, with all its attendant enjoyments of sport, with ample supplies of fresh, sweet water, and majestic scenery on all sides, are factors in popularising a seaside resort. Burley Heads should be as popular and famous as any watering place in Australia. Reader's note, the following page has two photographs with two captions. The captions are, But here the roses blush so rare, here the morning smiles so fair, as if neither cloud nor wind, but would be courteous, would be kind. And, with purple clouds the whole horizon glows, the breezy spring stands loosely floating on the mountain top, and deals her sweets around. Reader's note ends. Logan Village. The calm that breathes through homely life, contentment, peace, and love. Around the name of Logan Village lingers an historic remembrance congenital to that which lingers around Ulmiston. Towards the middle sixties, Robert Towns, who was a Sydney merchant, and who had made much wealth as a trader in the South Sea Islands, initiated on the Logan River, where he had large sugar plantations, the system of Kanaka labour. Here was the beginning of the problem which the policy of a white Australia was designed to solve. Could Robert Towns have foreseen the results of his action? Logan Village itself is a typical rural centre. Probably the term village will cling to it forever, even when it has assumed the proportions of a goodly town. Already it is rapidly extending, and its rich surroundings of agricultural and timberlands, coupled with its sweet climate, commend it to the special notice of all who desire to become fully acquainted with the Logan district. Hereabout, the high pitch of perfection and consequent success to which mixed farming may be carried is particularly to be noted. At every national exhibition in Brisbane, products from the Logan are the cynosure and envy of all eyes. Reader's note, there are two photographs on this page with one caption. It reads, Hail, gentle stream! Forever dear thy rudest murmurs to mine ear. On thy calm bosom lies the shade that love and memory have made. On the following page is one photograph with two captions. They read, Facing full the crystal orient, rose-kissed 
by the wondrous west. O oh, the rose-red seas of Southport, O oh, this haven of the blest. Reader's note ends. Come unto these yellow sands, and there take hands, curtsied when you have and kissed the wild waves whist, footed featly here and there, and sweet sprites the burden bear. The spell of southern Queensland's magic charm is laid on Southport. Here the vast extent of Morton Bay ends, and the long arm of Stradbroke Island, as though impotently striving to extend its protection, ends in a hand of withered sand dunes, over which the remorseless breakers of the Pacific gallop and dash in riotous glee. Within the bar thus formed, the waters of Southport are placid as a mill-pond, and the town itself, nestling along the shores and stretching back westward, presents a very pretty picture. Not unlike the Tweed Heads, Southport offers a treble advantage of ocean, bay, and river enjoyment, for the Narang River winds safely to sea at the southernmost point of Southport. Here are opportunity and occupation for the recluse, tourist, artist, and sportsman. Readers note the next two pages contain six photographs with five captions. The captions are as follows. Still the gates of glassy beauty, still the walls of glowing night, just to stand where nature's face is, flushed with power in forest places. Psalms from unseen wildernesses haunt thy tranquil sweet recesses. Yet the slopes of lawn and lustre, yet the dells of sparkling streams, dip to foam-kissed shores of jasper, where life's watching spirit dreams. Flushed with power in forest places, where of God authentic traces. Reader's note ends. The recluse may cross to where the naked sea comes a-roaring on the stubborn sands. There he may muse and revel in the society where none intrudes, and join in the mighty anthems of the deep sea's praise of the Creator. The artist needs must take with him his daintiest imaginings, if he would paint the tender lights that gleam on land and sea, the consecration of colour, and the poet's dream of delight. The boisterous breakers hoarsely challenge the cunning of his brush as they come rolling shoreward, mounting in their wild play and breaking with a foamy furiousness on the impending bar. Or would he paint the gentler aspects of nature, where lawny dells and slopes of summer, dazzling stream and radiant trees, stand out against the hushed horizon, out beneath the reverent day, here is work for his mind and eye. It is said that from Mount Lindsay, looking northward towards Southport, is a sight such as that of High Brazil, with its wondrous rose-red seas of beauty, walls of glowing light, and its dells of sparkling streams, dipping into tranquil shores of jasper. But to the tourist, who almost invariably is a sport, in the true sense of that term, Southport calls with seductive sweetness. The deep-sea fish lure and the buffetings of the breakers as they glint green and inviting in the early morning sun challenge all that is daring and courageous in human nature the spacious cove within the bar at which the surf thunders is aptly named broadwater the people of southport justly proud of this possession have gone to great expense in building a strong and ornate sea wall along the white sandy foreshores behind this wall is an esplanade along which stretches a long line of bathing boxes, 
giving charming variety to the prospect. At the end of the pier, which, from the feet of a pretty kiosk at which may be procured all excursionists' necessities, from a fishing rod to a hearty meal, is a spacious bathing enclosure. Always a refreshing dip may be enjoyed here, and, of course, special provision is made for the ladies. From end to end of the long esplanade, at the southern end of which is the Pacific Cable Station, whence day by day is distributed throughout Australia the world's news, are grassy picnic grounds with grateful shelter from the rays of the summer sun, and comforting retreats from the west winds of winter. It goes without saying that good fishing is always obtainable at Southport, and as the place is most popular and its facilities are so many, the expanse of Broadwater is almost the home of fishing parties. Motorboat parties from Brisbane regularly take weekend trips through the South Passage to Southport, adding to the life and stir always noticeable there. Reader's note, the next page contains one photograph with a caption. The caption reads, In the sight of Southport gleaming, gleaming by the sapphire sea. Reader's note ends. Though Southport is so popular as a pleasure resort, it has a serious side of life also. The surrounding district, in common with all of this part of Queensland, is devoted to agriculture and dairying, and farmers and dairymen are valuable customers to Southport storekeepers. Excursions outside Southport itself may be made in plenty. One of the most favourite of these is across the Narang River, over which a ferry regularly plies to Belly Head. A noble stretch of seven miles of hard white sand forms the track to the head, and either as a walk or a drive, this excursion is most enjoyable, nor is there any lack of sport for those who are fond of shooting, game being plentiful enough in the adjacent walds and scrubs. Few seaside pleasure places are equipped better than is Southport for catering for the comfort and enjoyment of tourists. Its hotels are noted for the excellence of their accommodation and for the reasonableness of their tariff. Not to visit Southport is to miss one of the most pleasurable experiences of acquaintance with southern Queensland. Reader's note, the next page contains two photographs with two captions. The captions read as follows. Housed beneath the gracious kirtle of the shadowy water myrtle, see my soft spray glint and gleam. Here in flowerful forest arches, where the sweet spring's path of march is. Reader's note ends. Tambourine Mountain Beyond the battlements of crystal that guard the dazzling dawn, sonorous caves Aeolian, where Oster first was born, far fervent west, rose-hearted, the north with silken skies, these are the sights supernal that greet my lidless eyes. As the gaily-clad slopes and vales, which dip towards the placid Cumera, encharm and enchant the tourist's eye, the more majestic scenery on the west is likely to escape his notice. On this side, rising to the height of 2,000 feet, stands Tambourine Mountain, a huge full stop, as it were, at the end of the common-like range of the same name. Though Tambourine is some miles distant from the line, yet, through the clear rings which at intervals permit a glimpse of the westward beyond, a fleeting view of the mountain scenery may be obtained. Like all Australian mountains, Tambourine is draped in a flowing robe of perpetual purple, and its loftiness suggests the magnificence of the outlook from the summit of its broad plateau. The tourist has the choice of two routes to reach Tambourine. He may travel by the Southport line, leaving the train at Oxenford, or he may take the Beaudesert route, 
leaving the train at Logan Village. The mountain itself stands just about midway between the two places, but as the Logan Village route is the easier, it is the more popular. More adventurous spirits, however, may prefer the Oxenford route, as it challenges their endurance and inspires them with its rugged beauty. When the summit of the mountain is reached, it is seen to consist of a plateau of miles in circumference, but only part of it has been cleared. That part, however, is sufficient to reveal the rich character of the soil on the plateau. For as the earth cooled, like a shriveling apple, leaving tambourine mountains standing amid the huge surrounding wrinkles and furrows which now form valley, gully and ravine, that original deposit of rich soil was left to provide the protection of tree and scrub for the mountain's lofty pole. But to describe the scene from this eminence surpasseth the power of language. It embraces the majesty of creation. To the east, apparently slumbering in a purple cradle, rocked by the gentle breeze, and hushed by its lullaby, lies the Pacific. Nothing save the regular gleaming thin line of white, marking where the breakers burst into foaming spray, is there to suggest that might and immensity which lie hidden in those titanic tides yonder. Like some gigantic sapphire, myriad-faceted, each facet gleaming and glistening with silver light and star-stolen rays, the Pacific is set on the bosom of the shore. Between the sea and the foot of the mountain, one vast expanse of undulating green, bending in unison to the breeze, stretches in mysterious silence. The curtsy of a lofty tree gives a momentary flashlight glimpse of the kumara. The deep tones of the bellbird resound, like peals, from out a great grave organ, echoing in their swell along the aisles of a vast cathedral. To the south stretches the illimitable expanse of woodlands, which extend to the Macpherson Range. Yonder are tweed heads. Yes, and there, indeed, the sun-rays, flashing on the bosom of the tweed, betray its winding course. Westward, the far main range stands out, as though it were the ultimate end of all things, supporting the vaulting arch of the turquoise-tinted sky. Far, so far below, may be descried the vivid squares of green, marking man's industry with plough and harrow. Here and there appears the farmhouse, or homestead, miniature in the distance, but blandly beautiful in suggestiveness of rural peace and comfort. Reader's note. This page contains two photographs with the following captions. Fair and radiant, like to Eden, where the great gold river runs, and where the fearful ocean races in august, unfathomed places. Reader's note ends. And northward, the tropic fever tints the skyline, and at night, the great bear, with his sleek surreo of satellites, peeps over the edge of the northern horizon to gaze on the glory of the Southern Cross. Here, then, is a spot which nature seems to have set up as a mighty altar on which man may offer gifts of gratitude for her benevolence. How long will it be before the one very excellent accommodation house on this summit will be surrounded by palatial hostels, crowded with tired folk from the cities of the north, south, and west? For throughout Australia, a more beautiful, majestically beautiful spot than the summit of Tambourine cannot be found. Those who doubt it put it to the proof, and those who put it to the proof confess the usefulness of endeavour to describe the experience of elevation and the revivifying influence of Tambourine's nimble,
balsamic atmosphere. Reader's note, this page contains two photographs with two captions. The first photograph is a lighthouse and is captioned Grim Sentinel by day and night. The second photograph is the sea striking a rocky shore and its caption is Ever Restless, Restless Ever. Reader's note ends. The Logan and Albert. And here it was that he who braved the unknown sea and shore left everlastingly engraved on it the name he bore. It is curious to note how the passing of the years, bringing with it troops of newer generations, strips familiar names of all their traditional romance. Yet, despite that fact, some traditional names of places defy the faculty of forgetfulness and keep vividly before the memory of the generations the romance or tragedy associated with their origin. Reader's note, this page contains two photographs with the following captions. Wooing the Aeolian breezes for the love of home and life, and and the placid stream's reflections make a second world of peace. Reader's note ends. What vivid pictures are conjured up by the names of Mount Misery, Mount Despair, and similar grim appellations so frequent in Queensland's geography? But the name of the Logan suggests nothing of the tragedy historically attached to it, or of the dark days when first it was given to that section of southern Queensland which bears it. Readers note the next two pages contain five photographs with three captions. The captions read, In the yellow flame of evening, in the setting of the day. Ah, sylvan peace, tis here you dwell, and haunt each stream and every quiet dell. And, fairer the nights, and effulgent the day in it. Readers note ends. As he passes through the magnificent country thus named, noting its amazing potentialities and natural resources, little dreams the traveller, and indeed the younger native generation, probably just as little, of the traditional tragedies with which the man whose name it bears was supposed to be associated, and who himself ultimately was the victim of a ghastly tragedy so characteristic of the days of Queensland's pioneering. In 1825, so says the historian, arrived Captain Logan, an energetic, determined, enterprising, but dreadfully severe ruler, whose term extended till 1830, the year of his bloody and mysterious death. Logan pushed out southward and descended the river which now bears his name, and which is joined by the Albert. His expeditions were ended by his tragical death. His bruised corpse, the head and face horribly battered, was discovered buried. The battering indicated murder by natives, but the internment was contrary to their practice. The mystery never has been cleared up. Such, in tragical brevity, is the history of the man who discovered and named the magnificent Logan District, which is admitted to be one of the finest beneath the Southern Cross. Of course, in its early days, the Logan and its neighbour, the Albert, which is of equal magnificence, were devoted to pastoral pursuits. In the names of some of the surviving stations, is an echo of the roving, cattle-roving days of long ago. Tabragalba, Maroon, Bodesert, Ninduimba, Tamrukum, all associated with the stirring times when, with eye and ear and trigger a cock, the early pioneers sat around the campfires and knew the call of the cooey as they knew the melody of Home Sweet Home. But the present population and the demand for a more adequate utilisation of these splendid areas has given many of the old squatters notice to quit, and have sent the music of the axe ringing through the scrub and over clearing 
bidding fire and ploughshare to aid in the work of closer settlement. And the demand is not yet satisfied. Besides the restless activity in cutting up and throwing open for agricultural and dairying holdings, the pick of the areas circumjacent to the railway line, the state has its surveyors spying out the splendid plateaus and vales beyond, whence, as by magic, will come the summons to the rear guard to pitch camp tomorrow where the vanguard halts today. The beginning of this remarkably magnificent area of country is at Bethania, where the railway, really a tramway, constructed by the Bodesert Shire Council under the supervision of the railway department and virtually supervised by it, runs a distance of 25 miles in a southwesterly direction to the present terminus at Bodesert. Immediately Bethania is left, the character of the country ahead may be anticipated. The fine pasture lands, alternating with broad stretches of agricultural land, heavy with flourishing crops, and here and there a stretch of splendid timber country, eloquently bespeak the potentialities of the district. Here the train will speed past broad acres, just newly turned, or just being turned over by a four-horse plough. Beyond, on the gentle slope overlooking the fallows, is the homestead, nestling amongst the foliage of the orchard, as if shyly peeping at the passing stranger. Further on, the creaking wain, laden with huge logs, such as those that used to be hewn on Norwegian hills, to be masts for some mighty leviathan of the deep, is slowly dragged along the adjacent road by a team of patient bullocks. Anon comes a German wagon, with its two sturdy draughts, and laden with cream cans, making for the butter factory by the line. And, great as the part of the bullock, as a draught animal, has played in the development of Australia, that part is far from being done, for yonder distant spurs and bridges, valleys and hillsides, yet have to be cleared. And what beast so sure-footed and plodding on such precarious footholds, and so effective for such work? The bullock team will have the laugh of the traction engine for many a long year yet to come, a fact which may account for the undiminished vigour and picturesqueness of what is known as the Australian language. Reader's note, this page contains three photographs with two captions. The captions read as follows. In the sound of the leaf and the lute, of the wind on the quiet lagoon, in the scent of the clover-clad pasture, is the sound of the soft evens croon and skies languishing with balm of bloom and streams aflame with light and foaming breakers mocking doom as joyance lures delight on the right and forming an impressive background is the flinders range which already has been attacked by man's restless energy in search of new areas for industry and new sources of primary wealth and certain it is that ere long beautiful mountain resorts for tourists where the healing balsamic ozone soothes the heart and mind, will be in existence there. Then let the Blue Mountains look to their laurels. The abounding prosperity of this district is proclaimed in two emphatic ways, by the insatiable demand for its primary products of every description, from fat cattle to strawberries, and by the signal profitableness, this latter is a handsomely paying enterprise, and that despite the almost ridiculous cheapness of the rates charged on it. And all throughout this, as throughout all other districts in Queensland, at every small centre of settlement is to be seen the neat school building, at which the state provides the inestimable blessing of free education. And in that unsurpassable system, 
is one of the state's finest assets for it spreads the amenities of law and order as well as bringing high intelligence to the handles of the plough and the breeding of the herd no fictitious progress and prosperity then is this to be seen around on every side in logan and albert it is the progress of absolute conquest and the prosperity of permanent abiding a j cumming government printer brisbane end of section 3 end of tours in the south coast district read by timothy ferguson gold coast australia